0: not proud but-
1: Welcome to the Bubble Hour podcast where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there and I hold space for your stories here. Today on the podcast, we meet Lynn Maddie. Lynn is the host of a fantastic podcast called The Sober Therapist. I hope you check it out. It will surely become one of your favorites. It's one of my favorites. And she also runs Sober Soul Recovery. She's a counselor. She's a woman in recovery. And she's a woman with a story that we're going to hear today. Hello, Lynn. Welcome to the Bubble Hour.
2: Hi, Jean. I am so glad to be here <laughs> I can't tell you.
1: I'm glad you're here, too. I have to tell you, I was going to say this in the intro, but I want to say it with you hearing me. Your podcast, The Sober Therapist, is one of my absolute favorite podcasts, and I don't say that lightly. You're doing a wonderful job. Thank you so much for providing this podcast for us.
2: Thank you, Jean. I really appreciate that, especially coming from you. That means a lot.
1: Thanks. Well, I am a, a podcast junkie and I'm a therapist <laughs> junkie. And so your your show really combines two of my favorite things. But the other thing is that your voice is you could be on the calm uh, meditating app, I think, too, because you've got a really lovely, calming voice, wonderful delivery. So I'm oh, going thanks. to stay focused as being an interviewer and not just like turn into jelly in my chair as you're talking. <laughs> Got to stay on my toes today
2: (laughs) thank you thanks for saying that I might get a little squeaky talking to you so (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes we're both
1: in our chatty chatty voice right now and not the professional radio announcer voice but that's okay that's okay (laughs) right well tell our guests uh, tell our listeners a bit about yourself Lynn and and tell us who you are and um and actually, we'll have you tell a bit about yourself, but you can go right into your story and tell us sure. about
2: all about you. Okay. Well, I am 55, about to be 56, and uh yeah, just welcoming midlife and all that it entails as much as possible. It's not always easy, but um yeah, I've been a counselor since 2014-ish. I've been practicing um, since I started grad school in 2012. But um, for me, who I am right now is just this person who's evolved into recovery over the last 10 years. I'm about to celebrate 10 years in July as well. And I'm also a woman who lives by herself. I don't date a lot. I'm okay with that. And I spend this time just investing in me, which is a little odd for some of my friends who don't do that, who are like involved in their kids and everything else. But for me at this stage of my life this is who I am. This is what I do. I love what I do for a living. I have three wonderful pets um, that are, two are kind of older. They're King Charles Cavaliers. They're Sassy. Her real name is Sophia, but you know, nickname Sassy and Winston Churchill, who I call Winnie and then Mimi Grace, my kitty cat. And these are the things that I use, you know, the, the, Loving things that I use in my day to day life to kind of keep me grounded, my little babies. And I don't know, I'm just kind of the normal girl. I still use that term for y'all um, who likes to just live life in recovery. That was very free flowing. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> As I look out onto my hummingbird feeders and everything else, I'm very Zen today. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to be.
0: Yeah, That's
1: a good way to be. Yeah. Um, so you said that you are about to celebrate 10 years of sobriety. Congratulations on that. Thank you. That is wonderful. Um, what's it like for you right now at this stage being sober? Do you feel like it's less about the alcohol and more about the mindset? And at what point does that shift start
2: to happen? Yeah. Well, I would say what I've learned um, in my recovery is that it's not very much about the alcohol or I was also addicted to benzodiazepines. So it's not very much about that and certainly not anymore. More, it's really about who I am as a person on the daily. Like what do I do to maintain sanity And I like the word content. Um, A lot of people think I'm saying content, but I'm not. It's contentment and, uh, you know, peace, uh, uh, but really just moving through my day without a lot of ups and downs. That's what it means to me. And how I discovered all this was because I, you know, a little bit about myself going back into my family of origin is that not unlike many of us, I came from many of us who suffer from substance use and other mental health problems. I came from a very chaotic environment. Um, I was born full of anxiety. And I think part of that is because what we know now about epigenetics that my mother, I was her third child, and my father um was bipolar, uh, and his mother was schizophrenic, and the the just the chaos in which they grew up, both of them, created stress in the womb. And I whew, I came out just a ball of nerves. I didn't sleep well. Um, I played, but I could tell when I have these memories that gradually came back after I stopped drinking, that I was really um, focused on other people liking me. And the way that looks like for me as a child, or looked like for me as a child was I didn't want to get in trouble because the my dad was loud, right? Mm-hmm. And that's scary. I developed this quirky behavior of when I was getting yelled at, I would hold my breath. And that morphed into that and other behaviors that I had that were anxiety, uh, housed in anxiety became the joke kind of in my family. I mean, they still tell it to this day how I used to hold my breath and pass out. Um, And they don't really understand none of my family is really into the whole therapy thing that they don't understand what I understand. And that was a coping mechanism for me to numb myself to this environment at the age of three, right? That's the first memory I have of, of doing that behavior, holding my breath to passing out. And I had nightmares, just really poor sleeping um, for most of my life until I got sober and what that looked like as I uh, developed, went through the developmental stages of life was, you know, sleeplessness, over people pleasing. I was in every sport. I was good at every sport. And then I would fail. I would, my body would fail. My mind would fail. And I'd pull out of everything for a while. My mom would take me to the doctor. And they would prescribe a literally a dictionary. <laughs> You know, <laughs> and to get to sleep, uh, going back a few years, they gave me placebo medications for going to school because I would throw up before going to school. And it was just so clear to me when I looked back on all of this, that it was all about this intense fear of my environment and later myself because when you grow up in that kind of chaos, as I'm sure lots of listeners are aware that you maladapt, you just try and adapt to the crazy stuff that's happening in your world. And you try and make some semblance of sense and you know, uh, make, try and make your day-to-day something that, that's tolerable. Uh, and what happens then is that that doesn't really work as you mature. So you get, you end up hiding things. Like nobody knew that this was going on. Um, when I ask my adult childhood friends now, they're like, "I had no idea." Uh, even though I I tended to cry a lot, um, I tended to miss school a lot. I was sick a lot, um, and. Chaotic things happened in my life because my grandmother was very ill. She would party and um, ride buses and interact with kids um, my age. So people would say, Your grandmother was sitting next to me on the bus. And because she was, you know, sick, one time a really good friend of mine said, Well, she want, wanted to. Enlist us, you know. She asked for our help to burn down your house. And I'm like, I didn't know what to say to him. Wow. Right, right. <laughs> I'm like, uh, she oh, does, she does that. She does that <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. How do I, you know? And then, of course, I ruminated about that and. It was not a topic for conversation in my house, so I couldn't go to my mom or dad and say, hey, grandma, rode next to my friend on the bus and said this. But that was the kind of stuff that I grew up with and tried to handle. In, and I had no training for it. So those early childhood experiences, the adverse experiences were plentiful as I was growing up. And, you know, we had some really tough things happen where my my grandmother ended up being murdered. And when I was um, a sophomore in high school, and it's, um, again, still amazing to me when I ask my friends about this now that I'm sober and I'm close with my neighborhood friends that I grew up with and they barely remember it, but it was so you know, profound to me, obviously, because we, we found out she, she was, um, this all happened on a Friday. I was a cheerleader, didn't go to the game. And, you know, I came home from school and was worried because two cars were in the driveway and that was unusual. And both my parents worked. And so we found all this out and then my parents sent me back to school on Monday. Right. It was just, Don't talk about it. Don't do anything, but just go to the funeral and get over it. Not great coping mechanisms there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it was really a challenge to not sink lower and lower into what we do when we're highly anxious. Um, And then we have the wax and wane of the anxiety and the depression. I would, you know, I was crier before, but after that in high school, I would, I would cry. I would find an empty classroom and just cry, um, and hide from people. But at the same time, I was really active. I was in the popular group, all that kind of stuff. So I learned the mechanisms of masking all of that pain and despair, even though I desperately wanted to share it with somebody. And, that turned into um, me stealing um, from my mom's wine box in the basement, trying to get to sleep. That uh, started probably around my junior year, and my mom also took Valium. So I she she didn't make that a uh, secret. I knew she was taking a pill to go to sleep, and I never slept. So I'm like, why don't I get that pill? So I would steal her Valium, just like a. I would steal the tablet and cut it into like these smallest little pieces. But, you know, that was something that, uh, even when she did find out, she just said, don't do that. Right. It didn't become something for us to explore further her talk about, because at, by that time we were really heavily focused on my father. And in fact, my senior year in high school, I basically, my dad had a mental breakdown and was at home a lot and I was, because I was the youngest and I wasn't out and about, I was kind of told to take care of him as well. So, yeah, so, you know, sometimes I don't talk about this very often. So, um, yeah, it's emotional to remember all this and to talk about it to all of you who are listening because it is what was such... In hindsight, in understanding and making sense of who I was back then, such a profound moment for putting me on this pathway to substance use and abuse and addiction. Over time, I just learned that I didn't have the tools. And I and nobody was really interested in talking, which, by the way, is what made me I firmly believe that I was born to be a counselor because I have memories of sitting on the back of a sofa at the age of five, trying to um, moderate an argument between my parents and my grandmother. And that's who I was throughout my life in my family. When I I lived at home, I, I wanted to talk about things. And people thought I was just nuts. I mean, they clearly had already labeled me a little nuts for, you know, the holding my breath and not being able to sleep and, you know, going in and out of things. Like I run sport, I do sports for a while and I pull out of the sports and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was, it was a really difficult, um, first 20 years and, and the thing that made 20 through 40 not so difficult was drinking. I really started to drink in earnest when I was 20 and 21. So. How did that enter into your life? Well, I live, I'm from Wisconsin. So (laughs) that, uh, not that that's the end all to beat all, but Is that an answer in itself? (laughs) For you cheeseheads out there, maybe it is. Yeah. I I guess a lot of people say that. Well, I live in Michigan or I live in Minnesota. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's a rite of passage. I just didn't really do it very often because when I did drink, um, my father Really got pissed off about that kind of stuff. Like when you'd go out with friends and stay out late, he was the father who would stay up and sit in the chair and scare the, you know, bejesus out of you when you mm-hmm. came home. And I was just so frightened of his outbursts that I'm like, I sort of want to be bad, but I'm going to, I'm going to plan. I'm going to make sure I'm sleeping over at somebody's house. But even so, that was something that caused. there were just certain things that we didn't do too much in our household. We didn't have too much fun, if you know what I mean. We had to kind of circle the wagons a lot. And uh, especially when I was taking care of my dad and being a confidant to my mother, that kind of thing. So over time I snuck out enough to realize that I wasn't quite comfortable when I was in the teenage years with drinking because I was still, attached to being in control a little bit of my behavior when I was out and about with my friends because that mask was, you know, Lynn's, you know, captain of the cheerleading team. She gets all her homework done. Um, I had a clear ideal image when I was out with my friends, or at least I thought I did. Um, and then, but when I did graduate high school, I felt like I had more freedom. I, especially when I, when I went away to college, I would drink a lot more and it just became a thing that we did, but I still didn't, I still hadn't discovered the relief that it, that it gave me. And I think there was a transition when I moved to Minneapolis, I discovered Prince at the same time. Anybody who knows me, huge Prince fan. And (laughs) pretty much why I moved to Minneapolis. Um, But I was, I moved from a college in Wisconsin to Minneapolis and broke up with my boyfriend at the time. And that was a little traumatic. Um, I didn't realize how attached I was to him. And I was really sad about it deep inside. And I started to drink heavily at that time when I was out. Um, And I did notice at that point That it gave me a lot of relief from my rumination about, should I have done all this? Should I have moved this far away? My parents didn't like that I moved away. In fact, my dad, the first time I went away to college, didn't speak to me for six months. Classic kind of codependent relationship there. And so it was really confusing, but alcohol made it less confusing. And that's how I got rolling on the alcohol bandwagon looking back do you think that your
1: use of alcohol kind of fit into the college norms or did you feel like even though you say you know it wasn't the it wasn't the magic button for you quite yet Mm -hmm. can you see that it was different or do you think that that role of alcohol
2: for you changed over time it was part of for me it was part of fitting in, sure, but I, I don't think that was the prominent reason that I would drink. I really liked, I. it's funny, I look back, Jean, and I equate my early drinking with dancing. And that combination, dancing, like just ripping it up, right? Not caring what people think. Um, 80s music, still love my 80s music. And that just was freedom to me. So that combination is what I'd landed on early on that made me feel just free. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sexually active yet. Um, meaningful. I hadn't had intercourse yet. Intercourse? Do we still say intercourse? <laughs> so- <laughs> well, people are age do. <laughs> Sorry, that just sounded funny coming out, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I hadn't lost my virginity yet, um, and that that early combination of going out to a club and dancing and drinking was where I really found a love of that of alcohol. I still didn't like do. I was not a fan of day drinking because. Uh, ultimately alcohol also was deeply connected to just passing out and sleeping. Although I, I don't, I don't believe I consciously thought of that at the time, but what I did like to do is just like dance for four hours and you know, where my roommate would bring somebody home with her, I would just go and fall on my bed and, um, that felt good to me. I sl- yeah, I I remember asleep. those days.
1: Yeah. The, the spiral perm and the acid wash jeans and the, <laughs> the wham music. And yeah, wow. I remember the 80s were fun. <laughs> These were, yes. uh, what were yeah. you studying in school at that time? Did you, you said you were born to be a counselor. Did you, did you, were you drawn into the helping profession immediately or Not did you take all. another path?
2: Not at all. I really bought into the whole, we women in the 80s could have it all. Um, when I moved to Minnesota, I started at the University of Minnesota. And because I had a couple of fr- uh, hometown friends who worked at the Minnesota Daily, I got a job there, which was like a cush job. You got a parking spot on campus and all of this. And everybody there was big on <clears throat> you know, becoming... The, Big business women and and you know communications or I I tried to get a journalism major but my grades weren't that good. It was highly highly competitive at the time because not so much for journalism, traditional journalism, but for advertising. So that's what I did at the Minnesota Daily. I didn't write. I was on the business side, and uh, yeah, I threw myself into that. I took Japanese, <laughs> you know, I just got, I'm, I'm going to be an international businesswoman um, in advertising. So when the journalism school didn't pan out, I, I switched over to communications and that's what I graduated with.
1: Now, part of our ambitions as young women in the eighties was basically like that, that vision of the show, the, the suit with the shoulder pads and Uh, yeah (laughs) and the um you know there's a lot of movies from that era working girl you know working girl yes so I think we I think a lot of us it's it's just you're really taking me back to talk about this era but I remember being a young woman and trying to determine where I wanted my life to go and it was very much influenced by the media and by the culture of the time. But was there a part of you as well that was aware of wanting to chart a new course for yourself that was going to be really different than the home that you grew up in and really free yourself of that?
2: Yes, uh, that was a very strong component in me leaving home. Both my elder brother and sister were living with my parents Um, my sister had tried to go away to school and just, it wasn't her thing. My brother wasn't into college at the time. He did this, you know, he did end up graduating and going on to get, uh, he's a a pharmacist now. Um, but early on, both of them were sort of, um, they have a different attachment to my parents than I do. I have a caregiver attachment, um, really heavily codependent in that I took care of my, both of my parents. Uh, not that they weren't loving to me, not that they weren't parental to me, but over, I would say from like nine to uh, 17, I became my mother's confidant and my father's special girl, if you know what I mean. He was, my mom would actually say, you're you're your dad's favorite. And I'm like, I don't really feel that way, but I do get that I take care of him. Um, I get him out of bed in the morning and, um, you know, that sort of thing. But ultimately what that led to for me was, uh, I had to escape. I just, I, I couldn't, even when i was going to community college that's what i did for a year i because financially my my dad as a bipolar he was you know bipolar 1 so he spent a lot of money and uh yeah there was just no college fund for me and when i wanted to go away he i, I remember this distinctly I, I in order to get financial aid at the time i had he had to not declare me on his tax form And I had to force him to not do that. I literally had to move out. You know, it was just horrible. And he was still, I don't know, my dad would get fixated on things. And he's like, I'm just not going to do that. So that's part of the reason he didn't speak to me when I moved out. So there was all of this entanglement. And I realized that if I just knew deep within inside of me, if I didn't get out, it was never going to go away. But as we know in the recovery Zone in the sobriety zone, you know wherever you go, there you are, so that did not fix my problems <laughs> it, you know and it, it probably even uh, magnified them, but ultimately, I did know that I had to move, I had to get on with things and and live a little, and what that turned out to be was um I had to be super good at that, like i couldn't be a failure, so it didn't mm-hmm. it worked like now when I look back, Jean, it worked for me, but at the time it was just another movement into perfectionism. I couldn't just be, you know, uh, an advertising executive at the Minnesota Daily. I had to be the first woman business manager at the Minnesota Daily. And literally I was not qualified to do that, but I ran and it was like, you know, one for the books kind of thing. And so, I was always pushing myself to excel excel excel, and so when I bought into that whole eighties momentum um I bought in first of all to the heavy drinking, you know, like cocktail hours after work became a thing um and, you know we would go out almost daily. that's probably when I started doing that it really embracing that daily end of the end of the day happy hour kind of thing. Um, and there was, it's Stubbin' herbs. I'm still, it's, I'm sure it's still there right across from where the Minnesota daily used to be. Uh, yeah, we'd go there every day and we'd just get tanked and then we'd get up and do it all over.
1: And get up and do it all over again.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, And normalize it. So let's fast forward a little bit to when, when drinking started to show some red flags for you. Although, what you just said is obviously a red flag, but you might not have seen it at the time.
2: Oh, no, I was blind to it for sure.
1: When did you start to have an awareness that, uh, alcohol could be a problem and,
2: and what did you do about it? Um, I'll answer the last question first, nothing but I, like many of us look like, no, I don't need to address that. But I, I had moved out for my first job after college. I moved out to Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Mendocino people. Um, that uh, worked for the press Democrat out there as an advertising salesperson. And that was a heavy drinking culture. And that's when I discovered wine. And that's also when I discovered more of my personal behavioral issues. Now, keep in mind, by the way, I started seeing counselors when I was nineteen, and and moved or twenty when I when I first moved to Minnesota is when I first sought out my own counseling, and so I had started the self awareness kind of uh, exploration, but. Um, really, frankly, my, my prefrontal cortex was not really greatly developed by that time. I didn't know how to integrate any of the information. I was still just really compulsive and um, impulsive about how I lived my life. So when I moved out there, um, it was away from, even though I didn't have really solid support, I mean, that would take another two hours to tell you about the kind of people I led into my life, but I didn't have, um, real good nurturing mentorship and or friendships. I, when I moved out there, I then was isolated, right? Cause that's what moving across country does to you. Even though I had one really good high school friend that I moved in with, um, overall, I was just not, aware of my own behavior until I moved out there and got involved with people who were kind of wonky. Uh, A lot of people did drugs, cocaine at that time, not for me, thank God, but that's, you know, I would drink pretty heavily and, you know, end up sleeping at a friend's house. That was never my MO because of my, my uh, sleeping problems. And so I started to, to just deteriorate and that's, you know, When I uh, quit my first job, just suddenly I just said, I'm done, done with this and decided to move back to Wisconsin. And that was sort of the first indication, not so much that I had a problem with drinking, but I had a problem with relationships because I was, but this time I was 27, 26, 27 And, uh, I realized that I couldn't sustain relationships for very long and I had some anger in there and lots of resentment, even though I probably didn't know what a resentment was to save my life, but I did know that there was a common theme going on, but I quickly ignored it. (laughs) <laughs> Are these romantic relationships, or do you mean even friendships? Even friendships and work relationships. I had a low tolerance for conflict, and it was always somebody else's fault.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it, did
1: you feel threatened by conflict, or did you? You talked to you earlier about ruminating on things. Did you like really hold a grudge and really ruminate if something went wrong? Yeah. Or did, Okay. And yeah. what's that about? What is that? Because I, I remember doing that too. And I think that probably resonates with a lot of listeners. So I'm going to ask you to tell your story twofold, I guess. You yeah. know to talk about it and analyze it at the same time. But awesome. I can what do that. what's going on when we identify that in ourselves?
2: Well, I've come up with this nifty little chain that I have yet not I've not yet put into a diagram, but what What I know now is that I had a need. I had a need for connection. I had a need to release this pain that I have inside of me. And I had a need with my relationships that I could not express. So instead of expressing, I created an expectation oh, they should know that that's what I want or need. Quick story, when I moved to California, the reason they sought me out, I mean, love that I applied for this position out of the blue is that I didn't know who I was going to end up working for. I ended up working for a upscale shopping center. From outside in, it looked like a, like a plush, wonderful position to have. But the person that you had to work with was the closest thing that I've seen to a complete narcissist. And she was awful to work with. She would call me um, at four o'clock in the morning about her ads, and just no boundaries whatsoever. So she really tested me, right? And so I I had to start looking at my expectations of people's behaviors just by them thinking that they were going to mind read me. Like if I just said, um, "Please don't call me once," in a really soft, subtle voice. I in the expectation was that people weren't going to call me at 4 a.m. She didn't even hear me. I I set no boundaries. I'd had no consequences for her. Um, I know all this now, but no clue then. So I went right from expectation into rumination and resentment. And what's at the end of that line, that linear line, is explosion. And that's exactly what happened. By the way, it w- wasn't only me. It was the pre- previous two people who worked in this position. One actually was put in a mental hospital, but, you know, I, of course I measured myself against her because I just quit, <laughs> you know? But, right, uh, <laughs> yeah. But it was it's really understanding that I had no voice. I was so yeah. afraid of the actual conflict. By the way, I was really good at being mad. And I was really good at letting giving my friends an earful of this, but I wasn't good at actually sitting down with a person and saying, "This is not okay with me." Even though I attempted it, I, I, you know, I, I would, I will say that it's in my heart and in my soul, and I believe that's for all of us. By the way, that that tenacity and that resilience is in us to to have conflict without um all that fear that we feel and all the uh fear especially of being rejected but i was not doing it in such a way that people could hear me i wasn't leading with my own feelings i was just saying you need to stop this and she just laughed at me right because i'm i'm a subordinate
1: i feel like when when i was identifying a similar pattern in my own life I started looking back now. One thing I realized about it is that I wanted to stay on the side of being right. Yeah. So I was kind of invested in keeping that person behaving badly because that made me good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I gotcha.
1: I gotcha. <laughs> and so even though I wanted patterns to change or wanted situations to change, I still had this sort of misguided thinking that I... I needed them to stay in the bad category for me to stay in the good category. So it's hard to shift that dynamic when you're invested in this other structure (laughs) and black and white thinking.
2: I get that. I hear that. (laughs) Well, I think for me, it was just, um, yeah, probably some of that needing to be right. Uh, Yet also I felt this innate... Uh, Unworthiness. So, what it meant, what usually shut me down, what caused me to, like, I quit this job and I went in there and typed it out. Of course, I was drinking. I typed it out and I went in there in the middle of the night and I put it on my boss's desk. But then I, I isolated for, I think it was like three weeks before I did anything, two or three weeks. At least it felt like that. I had friends come over, you know, the traditional, like, out of a movie, open up the blinds. I was just, I just felt so horrible. Um, I felt defiant by, you know, resigning, but then I'm like, now what, where do I go from here? Uh, And that's my, that was my typical reaction. And I, you know, that's pretty much what I did to my parents. You know, uh, I said, screw you, I'm out of here. And that certainly showed up in that job as well. Screw you, I'm out of here. Right,
1: and then the shutdown is something that you described in your childhood too. Was that a yeah. similar, yeah, the same thing? Sort yeah, of it was kind of like holding and- my
2: breath and passing right. out for three, yeah. two or three weeks. Uh, yeah. This time, however, it included drinking. Only at the end of the day, I was still not like a day drinker, but I did notice because by then I was in the drinking culture. I was it was Sonoma County. It was all wine every day. It was drinking lunches. And I, although I didn't, that was really not my cup of tea because I didn't like to feel that out of control, right? And one drink um, made me feel wonky in the middle of the day. So I hadn't yet bought into that 100%. But I did go to happy hours and that was like almost every night partying kind of thing. That was the culture.
1: Can we just, as a sidebar, say that probably the reason one drink during the day made you feel wonky was because there was still alcohol in your system from the night before? <laughs> you, good call. <laughs> we we're so in denial of that, you know. We think, oh, I no, I'm not. I can't drink during the day. That's what alcoholics do. Right. I feel terrible if I drink during the day. But yeah. So just a, just a sidebar on that. Good I feel one. Like that might ring ring true. Yes. <laughs> good one. Listening. Because
2: what we know is. that that if you're drinking every night, right, you're also yeah. in withdrawal. Um, yes, you're a maintenance drinker. You're a maintenance mm-hmm. drinker, even though it doesn't come until happy hour. Right. So, yeah, spot on. And so that that's definitely the time that I noticed that um, I would go to the store to get wine on purpose. And that carried over when I, you know, shortly thereafter I drove home. Um, I lived at home, went back home, which was, you know, kind of a gut punch, but then I was buying beer every night. I don't know why beer instead of wine. Um, but I did, I'd go out and buy a six pack of beer. And my, my Nana said to me one night, do you need to drink that beer every night? My grandfather, by the way, her husband, um, was an alcoholic and he stopped drinking on his own. So that was the first time somebody actually said something to me. I identified with needing it. You know, there was a lot going on. Anybody who's moved across country and moved back in with their parents, there was a lot going on, um, a lot of ruminating, a lot of personal hatred. You know, my my inner critic was active. I took a job, a part-time job at a paper mill. I had to buy steel-toed toad boots, but I was inputting information and people were like, yeah, welcome back to Wausau Lynn. And it just felt awful. So a lot of drinking on the daily at that time. And that, you know, I ended up getting a great job selling medical implants, um, hip, knees and shoulders. Uh, and so I, I morphed out of that, hell no, I'm not coming back to my hometown, but kept the drinking After that, it was a, it was party on pretty much after that. So
1: was there a day or a moment when there was a ping and a change or what prompted you to seriously consider sobriety and do something? What got you into the action phase?
2: Well, it took another 15 years. Uh, A marriage to a heavy drinker, um, a failed attempt at getting pregnant, um, and then just realizing that I was living this, by that time, early 40s, pretty grand life, and desperately unhappy. Drinking all day long some days, especially if my husband was out of town, and I just realized that this was no good so the first thing i did of course was um leave my husband and i hadn't drank for a year before i left my husband not to say that i wasn't abusing medication during that time but i decided that i wasn't going to leave a husband uh when i was drinking had already established that drinking was a pretty bad problem for me I had one minor ish suicide attempt. I took 11 benzodiazepines, but it was after my husband caught me with a bottle of vodka. So it was really just a, you know, desperate cry for help and not wanting to be shamed. Cause he was, he was, he wasn't understanding of a lot of stuff, mainly because I hadn't told him a lot of stuff. We didn't have really good communication. So by the time I was in that car, driving back to Wisconsin yet again. Um, It took me about 90 minutes. I pulled off the road, got a hotel room, and started drinking again. And that is what put me on this really final, desperate um, reckoning. So that was 2008. uh, And in May of 2010, my father passed away. And then I went on a really deep binge after have, having gone through one outpatient program, two detox, two detoxes, a number of ER visits, uh, two ambulance rides in my hometown. Then I woke up one day, typed Hazel and Betty Ford into the computer. Um, after doing some, you know, those things that we feel really terrible about, the stuff that you don't want to tell other people about. I did some of those things um, and then decided it was time. It was just, I didn't know how to do it. I had tried just like we all try to, God, not drink, recover from my drinking. And this was at a time I had enough money to not work. I had tried working, decided that wasn't for me uh, and tried a little bit of sobriety, decided... It was too hard, gotten a couple of relationships, and then my father died, and I went off the rails for a a good two to three weeks. The last was like a 10-day binge where I didn't barely get out of bed, and there you go. Got in a car and asked my, my dear, dear uncle, who doesn't drink, to buy me a bottle of booze for the ride to Hazelden.
1: So uh, how long were you in treatment there?
2: Uh, high Achiever in treatment as well, just you know, a mere 21 days on the unit. And then I switched over to what's called the Lodge Program and did big book study for another week. Uh, but I really didn't get it until about the 10th, 11th, or 12th day when I was listening to Dr. Sepala, who... I got to learn from later when I went to the Hazelden Graduate School and I actually tell him that he was giving this lecture about neurobiology and that's what opened up my eyes. You know, I didn't believe that I wasn't really into the whole disease aspect of it. I'm like, nope, I get it. I know I need to do something differently. I just don't understand why I can't fix this myself. And so what was the key
1: phrase or idea that was shared that, that hit home for you? I still use it to this
2: day that you basically put your prefrontal cortex on vacation. I'm mean, like, what? Hmm. Cause I knew, I knew what a prefrontal cortex was amazingly. And I'm like, so he had these diagrams and then he showed this slide, um, show uh, where they were testing cocaine addicts at six months, nine months, and 18 months. And the reaction when the cocaine addict was... Sh- or, sorry, I'm using the addict old language, so I'm going to correct myself. So the, the um, cocaine user was uh, shown a picture of a pile of cocaine you know, at those intervals and the brain lighting up, you know, the amygdala and all of that stuff that surrounds it in that part of the brain lighting up. And, you know, he said, doesn't matter if you use alcohol, sex, gambling, any addiction is going to do that. It's going to light up your brain after you stop. And I'm like, holy mm-hmm. but Jesus that made and a bunch of other stuff he said to me about the neurobiology the shutting down of your synapses and the retraining of your brain to shoot you know the, the the actual synapses that you're building when you're drinking and using are to your midbrain not your prefrontal cortex and for somebody who always wanted to be smart who believed that I was really smart oh that resonated with me i just said i want to be smart again so that was it for me. It was really about the intellect more than anything else.
1: And is that when you decided to make
2: a career change and go to school? I, You know, I think it was seeded at that time. But I, what was more profound for me is, you know, I had all of this ability because I was financially stable. I did not have to work at least for a few years. And I said to myself, I am going to immerse myself in recovery. Why not? Because it wasn't for me, it was when they started talking about getting to know yourself. And by the way, don't all of us fight that at first? Like, I know myself. Mm-hmm. I'm an mm-hmm. expert on me. But mm-hmm. when they explain, it's not about knowing what you can do, what you're good at all that external stuff it's literally sitting with yourself and not hating on yourself learning to be mm-hmm. your own friend to yeah. identify the good stuff in you instead of ruminating about all this other bad stuff when i when i learned that whole aspect of neurobiology sit in that's uh, i will um, I'm kind of a hazel and groupie anyway, because I not only trained there, I not only got sober there, trained there, and then worked there, but I'm telling you, these lectures, the way that a good portion of the people teaching me, at least especially because I was so interested in the neurobiology, when they started talking to me about, you know, how I could retrain my brain, how I could really delve into Knowing that intuitive me and with cognitive behavioral therapy, Xing out this um, inner critic voice who, who is not me. who is was just the culmination of all of these people who were trying to help me all these years, who were, had bad coping skills themselves. I was like, I'm in and I want to learn lots about this. And so I went home and became a student of recovery. It was hard, you know, coming out of treatment. uh, You know, I had to drive myself home and it was a three-hour trip. And I talk about feeling like an outer space. Anybody who's been in treatment and you get out of treatment, get out of that bubble, you're like, wow, this is weird. I had to pull over numerous times just because I couldn't drive another mile. I was freaking out a little bit and breathing. And I went right, I did what they told me. I went right to an AA meeting sat with three men in a basement, never went back to that meeting, just saying, (laughs) but I went um, Mm -hmm. even before going home to see my, my puppies that I hadn't seen in so long. And then I did the continuing care program. They had an online continuing care program. They still do, but I'm sure it's different now. And I did the exercises. I read a lot. I discovered a little something called She Recovers online. I started just Googling to my, you know, crazy Googling. I believe I came across your blog, Unpickled, but I mm-hmm. didn't really know about blogs. You know, I didn't really get that yet. I was still just, I probably read a couple things and then moved on. But I, I do remember seeing, oh, Unpickled, that's clever. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> You know? And, uh, so it was really just fun. I got to exercise every day. I did, I did what they suggested and then, but I did it my way. I was like, nah, I don't really like to meditate yet. So I came up with ways of meditating. when I was out walking, I would take my headphones off and I would just listen to the birds. And I did that for two years. Yeah. As you, as you were talking about um,
1: your treatment, you stopped yourself from using the word addict and you corrected I did. Your, yeah. your use of language there. Um, but that is language that would have been used at Hazelden, I suspect. Has your perspective on recovery and addiction and recovery or a substance abuse or I'd fill it tell <laughs> yeah. me first of all the language that you're comfortable with and why that's shifted for you. Has your approach broadened and expanded? What has oh God been yeah, change?
2: Yes. I realized and you know just to kind of fill in the little gap, I I knew after year one that I wanted to be a counselor or something in the recovery zone. So I started looking at Hazel, naturally, Hazel in graduate school. They would say, I think they even sent me emails because I was an alum of the, um, program itself. But, so I knew I had my sights set on that, um, after probably more like 15 months. And so with that in mind, I really wanted to investigate, you know, everything. So when, I started, I was in AA and shortly after I entered the rooms of AA, probably when I found my meeting, which there were 21 meetings in my town and I went to every single one of them uh, and I stayed away from the one meeting people told me not to go to because it was elite or whatever they said it was. It was none of those things. And that became my meeting. And probably after three months there, I stopped saying, hi, Lynn, I'm an alcoholic Hi, I'm Lynn. I'm an alcoholic. I said, hi, I'm Lynn. I'm in recovery. Because I had found Mm -hmm. the word that was comfortable for me. So when I went to school, um, we still were using alcoholic very often in the language, um, it started to shift, because I went to started um, my program and my graduate program in 2012, and sort of when we started hearing about like my second semester there, the DSM5 was starting to come online. They were shifting from uh, alcohol abuse and dependence to the spectrum um, of substance use. And that's when language became an issue. And we really started to investigate it, not so much in our classroom, but in our, we did, we were working in the units at the time. That's the benefits of going to graduate school at Hazelden. We got to work almost as many hours as we wanted to really. Um, So we started to kind of play around my classmates and I with the language of recovery and addiction. Uh, attic was still being used, but I think really what opened up my mind to it more than anything else was, and Liv's gonna love this, but my discussions with Olivia Pinelli. Um mm-hmm. we we became fast friends at um She Recovers Los Angeles, LA. And she, you know, has long written about her transition out of aa and then she of course writes lots of wonderful articles that challenge your thinking right and i i specifically remember i posted on instagram and i had like a graduating um the smallest word was moderation then i had abstinence in a little bigger type font and then sobriety and then recovery and she, this may have even been before, I can't remember, but she challenged me on that. And that's when I really took off and started to investigate the language we're using around, especially professionals around recovery
1: language is important because i feel like sometimes language is what stops people from embracing recovery yeah. because they don't want the label of addict or alcoholic that it, because it's it's shame ridden it somehow completely yeah it, yeah it, it suggests that everyone else can handle this but you can't and you've you've degenerated down to this level where now you have to quit <laughs> right
2: I think that's the the biggest bonus of uh, the online recovery uh, world uh, is that you know we now have conversation about the spectrum of substance use. Now, we as professionals were not really good at conveying what the intent was around mild, moderate, and severe substance use disorder. It was strange to us when we first came online, especially. Because I learned the dsm four, and then halfway through my training, I had to relearn all of that diagnostic criteria because they really did change quite a bit, especially around substance use in the dsm five, Diagnostic, old statistical manual. <laughs> <laughs> but DSM is so much cooler. Uh, but that's, you know, I don't. The way I use the DSM is for information for my clients. I'm not big on uh, actually giving somebody a diagnostic, even around uh, substance use. But the information uh, for mild especially was geared toward what people talk about as sober curious or gray area drinking that the term actually came from a study that ended up informing the change, strongly informing the change for the DSM-5 uh, into substance use disorder. So I really do embrace the idea that, especially for me, my own personal journey, had somebody been able to talk to me back when I was you know, just learning about my relationship issues, because I was still going to counselors throughout my, my journey that I was describing to you all, But let's say that counselor that I went to see when I was in wine country, if I would have gone to that person in in the world we live in today, let's say we could just take everything we know and put it back into 1989, and if this person, if she would have been able to talk to me about the spectrum of substance use and the mild being when you, you... are having a couple of issues. I was by far, I was probably into the mild moderate by that time. I could have easily qualified for, I met uh, four or five of the criteria, which puts me in that mid, which would have put me in that mid zone. But had she been able to like, show me all of the criteria, and this is what I do with my clients. I'm like, Hey, let's look at this because it's not about how much you're drinking. It's about why you're drinking and the uh-huh. consequences of your drinking, that knowledge is so powerful. That's the beauty of looking at this sober, curious, You know, labeling it as an entree. And that's why now I teach moderation or abstinence or sobriety or recovery. You get to choose. I tell my clients this all the time. You don't have to quit to come and work with me. But you do have to choose kind of one of these to go after and try out.
1: Do you think that moderation is possible for everyone or is moderation sort of a little bit of a diagnostic tool for abstinence, (laughs) the need for (laughs) abstinence? You know what I'm asking? (laughs) Yes, I do.
2: So a lot of people, myself included, wish that they could moderate the, the, problem is that if you're in the moderate to severe side of the spectrum of substance use, it's nearly impossible because what's happened is you've already flipped your cognitive switch, meaning that your brain loves alcohol. Addiction isn't just about glug, glug, glug. Addiction is a is. You know we talk about process addictions of gambling and um what's another process shopping and other things um uh-huh. heroin sex is, sex heroin okay. is a process addiction. You talk to anybody who shoots heroin in particular or snorts it, the process of cutting it up the the the, the implements that you use same thing goes for at least many of us in our um love of wine for instance man i nobody that i partied with back in virginia where everybody that i that i socialized with partied and by party i mean just drink a lot but we would drink really good stuff right we would drink out of different glasses but we were drinking a ton of wine expensive wine uh-huh. sure we but we built into our or at least my addiction they get to decide for themselves the process of the dinner the process of the multiple glasses on the dinner table the wine dinners that's process so is it a twofold addiction then that the process
1: addiction which I think is Dopamine related, isn't it? And it then is. the physical addiction to the substance is there too. And we're using the word addiction. Is there a better word, or is it the right word?
2: It's. It, I use addiction because I. I know what we know is that there's no such thing as a purely physical or purely psychological addiction. It it, and that's why the DSM changed so profoundly because mm-hmm. what people were identifying in the abuse versus dependence was stigmatizing. To the dependence people, people were saying, I don't have, um, a physical addiction, so I'm not that bad, but Mm -hmm. we forget that your brain is physical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the way your mind is not separate from your brain. So the new idea that I at least teach to my clients is that you cannot separate those two things it's not beneficial to separate those two things in the recovery zone because if you do you become you give yourself an out essentially why not treat the whole body as it's meant as it, it's as it's built we are an integrated system so our recoveries mm-hmm. have to be integrated and if you're looking at a purely physical addiction the way a lot of people still talk about it the problem with that is that you have triggers and triggers are emotional physical dependence is not you know the way we used to look at it is not simply a reaction a withdrawal reaction it's a synopsis reaction within your brain it's complex but it's it's actually simpler than than what people are trying to make it out to be who still believe in this physical versus psychological addiction it's not accurate huh.
1: i've never I've never heard this idea i've always I've always understood them as being two different things that first you break the physical addiction mm-hmm. by with abstinence and then you work on the emotional or psychological dependence or addiction with you know. Behavioral changes. So this yeah. is you're you kind of messing with me right now. <laughs>
0: sorry,
2: sorry. Well, here's I'm, I'm going to have to take
1: the rest of the day off and put my head back together. Well, here's the good and news and delete all three hundred previous episodes.
2: Sorry. sorry. Well, here's well, way to go. Oh yay yay! And Jane is never going to have me back. Yay. <laughs> well, the the, the no, good I... news is is that. We didn't know this for a long time. And certainly, like, general population, non-mental health professionals didn't know it. The mental health and addiction professionals have known it for probably 15, 20 years. Scientists are not good communicators by nature. They're scientists, right? You know, for counselors, for people who dig deep into psyche, we need to understand how the brain works and the brain is fascinating because it is this um we can create new synapses we can learn new things it's amazing to me
1: i guess what what you're offering us is is the idea that it isn't quite as black and white Ever. as yeah. we used to think and in some ways that And maybe in all ways, that means that we need to be, you know, even more thoughtful and diligent in how we approach recovery and and unhooking
2: ourselves from from the cycle. I think keeping it really simple in the beginning, and sometimes for a lifetime, works for a lot of people. Not everybody is going to do what I do or what you do and, and get really into the intricacies of recovery. That's okay, uh, and by the way, that's kind of what I call sobriety, where you're really focusing on one or two tools to keep you away from a problematic uh substance in your life. That's okay, but for people like me who really want to dig into stuff and know who I am at my core and build really healthy boundaries and relationships. Um, that's more of how I work with people and advocate, um, for recovery.
1: And this is largely what you're doing with your podcast, The Sober Therapist. Yes. So before I let you go, (laughs) tell us a little about it. Explain your podcast to listeners who have yet to discover it and tell us why you started it and, and what your goals are and what the podcast is all about.
2: So, uh, the podcast itself is, um, what I I often tell people um, privately like this, just you and your gazillion listeners, is that it's the closest thing that I can ethically and legally do on this medium to therapy. So I pretty much talk about uh, things the way I talk about things with my clients, counseling, and then integrate Tips that you can actually, you know, coping skills that you can actually use. Um, In every episode, I give you something you can use in that given day. I try and keep things doable and simple because we need those things in our lives. But I also talk deeply and passionately about you. I believe at my very core that this journey that we're on not just substance abuse and you know overuse but the journey of life is finding wisdom within ourselves i do fully and i i feel this deep in my tummy right now that we're all born innately with this gift of of knowing ourselves it just we go through conditioning and we go through trials and tribulations that put layers and layers of gunk on top of that for me getting sober and relying on the tools that kept me sober for that good first year and a half then gave me the foundation to dig really deep into myself and find out who I am what I like what I don't like and live that way imperfectly and you know for our pre- We perfectionists—that's a really tough word to get out of your mouth a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's that's recovery in itself. Really, is just tolerating imperfection and embracing it.
2: I think it's the whole shebang. A bang, and you know, it is the whole shebang. And so, Mm -hmm. when I started my podcast, um, by the way, Jean, I usually say this on my own podcast, but I was introduced to podcasting. By my clients in 2015 coming into my group therapy sessions and telling me about the bubble hour. No way. Totes <laughs> no so I'm like, the bubble hour? That's clever. And then I figured out it's on un- that's when I made the connection between Unpickled and the Bubble Hour. And so you were the first uh foray for me as a, you know, supersonically trained addiction and mental health professional working at a treatment center into this whole world of recovery that was outside of the zone, you know, the bubble, if you will, that I was living in. And that's Mm -hmm. what motivated me over time. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be a licensed mental health professional, how can I, once I started investigating what was out there in the realm, you know, a lot of people trying to do really good work, but who weren't necessarily trained in mental health. I'm like, I'm going to get online and talk about mental health freely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I
1: love yeah. that you're doing this because I really feel that you're filling a gap that has probably there's other people doing it out yeah, there, but I yeah. really love the way that you're doing it. Thank and I, I love what you're offering and that you're very open about your own experience and your own recovery. And, I feel like that's important for two reasons. It is it is a great gift to those of us in recovery that need that kind of support and don't always have access to it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of learning that you're offering. But I also think you're doing a sort of a secondary type of service, which is to other mental health professionals who are really struggling with yeah. shame in, in their own recovery journey because they feel some... Um, expectation that they shouldn't, that it's, it's especially shameful for them to be in recovery because they're supposed to be an expert. And I hear this a lot. And, um, I really, I find it almost ironic because I think for a lot of us, I think if I'm going to go to someone for therapy, it's a bonus to me (laughs) if they're in recovery, (laughs) not a negative. (laughs) So, um, Anyway, I really appreciate that you're offering you know, yourself as an example, but also as a resource. So yeah. thank you so much for that. Tell our listeners how they can find you and sure. find your podcast and get in touch
2: with you. You can find me uh, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you are not a podcast listener yet, you can go to SoberSoulRecovery.net where uh, all my episodes are available as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram, uh, at sober soul recovery. I'm also on Facebook, like most of us, sober soul recovery. And I also have Lynn Maddy counseling, which is, you know, usually I post similar things on my counseling page and my, uh, sober soul page. Um, but you can find me at Lynn Maddy counseling as well. I published my first book last year. And just to let people know, somebody contacted me to write this book. It was, you know, I, unlike Eugene, I didn't really ever consider myself a writer. So I took this challenge on. And it was something, it was a topic that I'm very, that's very near and dear to my heart, which is, self-esteem. However, the title is five weeks to self-confidence. I didn't have, um, final say over the title. It's really about self-esteem. It's a guide to confronting your inner critic. A lot of discussion about what the inner critic is, how to name her or him and really get in there and unlock that controlling relationship, um, with your thoughts that the inner critic has. So, uh, it's a book based mainly on exercises. You do not have to do it in five weeks, but um, just a little shout out to my little book.
1: Oh, fantastic. I am happy to discover this. I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. I'll post a link in the show notes so that our listeners can find it. Thank you. And I look forward to reading that. Yeah. Well, congratulations on on all of that. Thank you. And thank you again. Thanks for sharing your story today as much as we could get to. Yeah. I mean, every episode could really be seventeen hours I long know. because I don't know how you do this. Everyone... Yeah, it's um it's amazing. I mean it, it's, it's just such an honor to hold space for people's stories. And uh, I think all of us, when we sit down and try to tell our story in an hour, it's when we really start to develop a lot of respect for our own story and realize that there's so much more than, than we realize in, in our
2: tales. It is lovely. And I really, I'm so grateful that you've, you know, for such a long time been doing this and giving people the opportunity to not only, you know, tell their stories, but I know sitting, my groups used to be 24 women strong, how much impact it has uh, to hear those stories. So yeah. Thank you.
1: Well, my honor. It's really a, it's a a tribute to all of the guests that have come on and shared really, because there's, there's, no show without them. (laughs) And that is, I think that the strength in numbers is really what this show and every show is all about. So it's it's great. And I love that our stories overlapped without us even knowing it. So that's really cool too. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time today. I wish you all the best. And um, listeners, thank you so much for your Unwavering, ongoing support of this show. Thank you, listeners, for letting the bubble hour be a tool in your toolbox. And that's all we have for this week, everyone. Thank you for listening. Until next time, do please take good care.
0: I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, Just want to be free from the power, of weakness, head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hang. We oh, you think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side. It just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride, turn the light on. Take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Oh, yes, head on. You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession the person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror And the one who matters most can always hear When you say you're old, not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power Oh, you miss But when you said, "Oh, I did that," I'm proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power.